Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick Series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Vincent Labruto. Mr. Labruto authored the first full-length biography of Stanley Kubrick, for which he interviewed more than 70 of Kubrick's friends, collaborators, and admirers. You know what fascinates me whenever, uh, when I speak to uh, writers and biographers, uh, the process of writing the biography. First of all, what, what drew you to Kubrick as a subject? Well, that, that's an interesting question. There's a bit of an answer to it. Um, there is a biographer by the name of Pat McGilligan, and he started um, by doing books, interview books on screenwriters. So I started by doing interview books on um, editors and production designers, uh, various craftspeople. So I wrote him a fan letter, and I was telling him that, you know, I love his work, and he wound up he got me to uh, to do some work for him on, you know, books that were coming up on the, uh, on the screenwriting uh, series. So... You know, we were talking, and I said, you know, if I, the person I would really like to write about, but he's been written about too, too much, is Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, let's see if we could put our heads together. And I was in my, uh, I have a little, I call it the library, and I have, uh, you know, a lot of film books there. I've been collecting them since I'm 17, and I'm 60 now, so you can imagine how many books there are. <laughs> <laughs> and they're in alphabetical order, you know, the whole thing. So I'm going down A, B, C. I couldn't believe this, but when I hit K, we both in sync said, how about Kubrick? Huh. So I said, Kubrick? Oh, my God. I said, you know, there really isn't much on him. There's there's that wonderful um, Michel Chimente book, and um, really there wasn't, wasn't really a lot. So um, he said that he knew a publisher um, whose name was nameless, you know, who was interested, and but I couldn't tell him that that uh, that Pat was part of this, you know. So what wound up happening was this person was interested, but he he um, he liked my work, but it wasn't quite right. So I got an, an agent, and it took forever. I mean, people were saying things like. Um, nobody's interested in Kubrick. (laughs) Or they'd say, people are interested, but Labruto is not the right guy for it. This guy's no good. (laughs) You know, you can imagine what this is like, you know? I mean, it's it's almost like being trashed by the New York Times, which I was when the book was reviewed on the day uh, that it was published. So anyway, to to get to, to the heart of your question, in getting an agent, I, I did sell the book, and um, it was a process. It was very complex because you have someone here, had someone who never, almost very rarely talked to people. It was 
a couple of writers that, that he talked about, Richard Schickel was one, when his um, movies came out. But he really um, it was very private. So I, I got a nice box, and I got all my books up to that time and sent it to him and with a nice letter and I never heard anything. Hmm. So then I proceeded. You know, I had a long, long list. I, I think I interviewed 75 people for that book, which wow. is a lot for a book on Kubrick, you know. Oh, yeah. And um got some wonderful, you know, uh, people to talk to me. And um, it was going along very well, and especially, you know, when you get people who are in his inner circle, like uh, Jimmy Harris, James V. Harris, who was his producer. And um, so what I did is, is when I was, um, oh, I guess uh, when I was about 20 or even younger, I started off with um, collecting all kinds of articles. And I heard Truffaut had done this that he had file folders, and he would put in, anytime he found an article on a director, he would do that. So I did it. So I had a lot of stuff on Kubrick, and um, just kept going, kept going, kept writing. It was getting longer and longer and longer. Um, at one point, my um, the uh, person who was running the um, the project was saying, uh, you know, I'm getting scared. It's it's too long. He wanted to cut it. He cut it without my uh, permission. I, I threatened to to uh, pull the book. You know, all that kind of uh, strum and drang. And then eventually, um, we got it out there. And mm -hmm. this was a combination of all those sources. Well, and yours is the first full-bodied biography of Kubrick that we had. Um, and I would think that tackling a subject like Kubrick, obviously he's elusive and uh, he's almost mythic in a way in the film world. Yeah. Uh, was the pro did the process kind of it had to have humanized him for you? Oh yeah, very much so. I, you know, and I was saying to a lot of people when the book came out and a lot of interviews, I would say he's a Bronx guy, you know. He's a he's a regular guy. What do you mean? He's Kubrick. I said, yeah, he's Kubrick. But you know, when you do the research, you see that that uh, you know a lot of the things about you know uh, wearing helmets and all, all the crazy stuff that was that and some of that I put in the book too. You know, but there was all kinds of, of rumors about him. But one of my favorites is someone told me that he didn't talk to anyone in his family except on computer. That's what would he do with his wife and his daughters? Actually, he would talk for hours upon hours on the telephone. His telephone was his greatest ally. It was uh, um, So tell me about uh, the, the most interesting kind of exchanges that you had with, with collaborators. For, for you personally, what was most exciting for, for you? For, the, for me personally, it was Jimmy Harris. Mm -hmm. uh, James V. Harris, and he, um, I walked in, and he said, um, can I get you a drink? I said, I'll just have some water or something. So he was sitting down, and he's looking at me, <laughs> you know, and I'm smiling. He's, he's a very nice guy, and he's smiling, and he looks me in the eye, and he said, you know, I was just on the phone with Stanley, not Stanley Kubrick, Stanley, you know, it's his friend, right? <laughs> 
he said, and he, um, we were talking about you. And I, I said to myself, listen, if you've ever been calm in your life, channel it. Just, yes, <laughs> you know. So I said, oh, that's interesting. He said, yeah, you know what he said about you? And then that's where you start to shake, right? But I wasn't shaking. Mm-hmm. He said, that kid knows more about me than I do. He said, he's talking to my teachers. And he said, the kid is great. He said, talk to him. He said, because he said, this kid knows about movies. He said, he's not like the other interviewers, you know, that take a different approach. So then he listed, and I don't know if I can remember them all, but he, he, he listed uh, things that uh, Jimmy did that he would not talk about. One of them was how much a film cost. And the only, only other one I remember is that for any one movie, they approached that he worked on with him, uh, Jimmy worked with uh, Kubrick, that they would talk to a bunch of people, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, and, and several actors, and they may turn them down, or maybe they were busy. He says, he says, I won't discuss that. Mm-hmm. So he said, well, we're finished. He said, are you, are you, co- you know, are you comfortable with this? Because, I, you know, I, I mean, it's important to me, and uh, that's the way it's got to be, but I want to make sure that you're all right with it. So I said, of course. He said, well, let's go. So I started, so I had that in my mind, right? So I'm keeping away from all these things. And all of a sudden, on his own, he mentioned all three of the things. <laughs> all three. And something that, you know, my wife Harriet never forgets. I came home and I said, now I have a book. Mm. It gives me the chills just thinking about it. And it, it must have been so empowering Oh. That that Kubrick's kind of vote of confidence about your your aims, about your research, and everything that you did. Wow, wow. unbelievable! You know, and you, you were saying before about about the phone. To say one quick, probably the well, the two funniest stories are Stephen King got called up, you know, for The Shining, mm-hmm. and it was in the middle of the night, and he said, "Who is this? Stanley Kubrick? Oh, 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 oh! Hi, do you believe in in God?" Excuse me? Do you believe in God? Because God is linked to heaven, is linked to ghosts, and, you know, so he answered his questions. The other one is, um, now I'm blocking his name, the great cinematographer who worked with, um, did The Godfather. Uh, Gordon Willis? Yeah, thank you. Gordy Willis. Gordy Willis gets a phone call in the middle of the night, and the voice says, Hi, this is Stanley Kubrick. Realize what time it is because he, he's the kind of guy. Gordy is. I don't know if you've ever talked to him or interviewed him. He's a tough, tough cookie. Yeah. So he said, uh, "It's the middle of the night." He said, "All right, hold on. Let me." You know. So he he got out of the bedroom and went went down to the kitchen. He says, "How can I help you?" He said, "When you shot The Godfather, what lens did you use for the scene?" Blah blah blah. <laughs> 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 I got a thing. Yeah, I, I tell you. Every day I think of Kubrick. I miss him. I wish I got, would have gotten to meet him. What do you miss most about him? That's a great question. You, you, you know, at the time, you know, growing up, at any time that there was a Kubrick movie, the idea of, um, you know, and I say this in the book, that, that he was always out there making movies. It didn't matter what you were doing, what I was doing. Nothing was going to stop him. 
he was always working on a, on a project. And you know whether you know people think that his last films were the best or not. I mean, Eyes Wide Shut, I love. Me too. Me too. Well, I don't think it's his greatest film, but uh, but it's a it's a Kubrick film, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you know it's it's like uh, eating in the finest restaurant. So that that's what I miss that that he's not here to 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 do another film. Yeah, that I could watch. Well, you could you and I could get together and go watch them, you know. And movies that survive like no others, and, and by that I mean you can have a completely different impression of a Kubrick movie 20 years after the first time you watch it, oh, depending on where you are in your own life. And very few very few filmmakers produce work that that has that have that kind of longevity. That's so true. You know, you know it's interesting. I was 14 when Strangelove came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw it. I, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. You know, as a kid. You know, but, I, but I knew it was good, you know. And um, there's that scene where they mention... What's in in the kit that they have, and someone says prophylactics, and um, I remember asking my father what it was, and he says, "You don't have to know about that. It means clean, clean, you know." And then by the time I was uh, working on the book, which was many decades later, you know, I started to realize that I was, you know, one of the the uh, of a, not a small group, but that I actually saw this film. You know, saw an original print of it. Hmm. And Strange Love is a film that I absolutely adore. You know, it's, it's got the craziest plot. Yeah. It's funny. It, it is very funny, and I, I rewatched it again last week with a, a lot of other of the of the earlier Kubrick films, and uh, a lot of people miss his black sense of humor his oh, his dark kind of sense of humor uh but it's present in in many of his films but th- that's the most kind of overt example of strange love um yeah i'm sorry go ahead please you know what i really uh what i really liked about him and respect about him is that he i believe this is in the book that he is uh was petrified of being blown up by a bomb, you know? I mean, they're, they're, everybody was worried about the bomb in those days, but he found out wh- through research where the safest place in the world was mm-hmm. the bomb was dropped. And um, it was Australia. Hmm. But he talked to his wife, and she said, I'm not moving to Australia. <laughs> but for someone so feared, you know, uh, you know, so feared, rather, that the idea of a bomb exploding to make a movie about it and then to take you know a realistic approach you know originally the book the book i don't know if if you've read the book um the book is very very serious and then he you know turned it on its head yeah it 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 is kind of the most uh haunting uh frightening all-out funny movie that i i've seen (laughs) in a way because the implications are 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 terrible of, of, of the events unfolding in the film, and they're real. You know, they they could have happened. Um, that that was the world he was living in then. Uh, but the, about the world he was living in as a as a younger man, I know that a, a lot of people have the sense that that he was a, must have been a child prodigy. Uh, 
do you find that that was the case, or, or not absolutely necessarily so? True. Yeah, absolutely true. I would say, to be specific about it, and most accurate, is that he was a child prodigy as a um, still cameraman, still mm -hmm. photography. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, from there, you know, he sold stuff to Look Magazine. I mean, he was a very accomplished uh, photographer at a young age. And, you know, while he was still in high school. And then he got this job for, for Look, and, and the the work is, is really quite amazing. And then, um, you know, he started to develop things. What, one, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that he was um, – originally thinking of being a cinematographer, hmm. which is, you know, he may have been the greatest cinematographer that ever lived, but we never would have had this director. Yeah. In terms of his photography, and it is it is stunning what I've seen of it, what characteristics does his photography have that he, he kind of carried over into his film work? It's the, the, the sense of composition. In a Kubrick photograph, and especially in a Kubrick movie, he centers the image. He has something in the center, then something counterbalanced composition-wise on the right, and something compositionally balanced on the left. So you're looking at this like perfect image. Mm. And one of the things you know that, that I'm so happy about is that when I watch new movies, a lot of people are picking up on that, the, you know, the Kubrick framing. Yeah. And his father is the one that introduced him to photography. Yeah. I, it, it seems like his father had a tremendous influence in his life because not only photography, but his his love of chess, too. And, yeah. and I equate that to his enorm, enormous kind of analytical uh, sense that Kubrick had. Uh, I always think of him as the master chess player. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and his relationship with his with his mother, what was that like? Not not too much. Uh, it didn't find a, a lot, you know. I think she, um, you know, was very proud of him. Um, but there's much more on the father than there is uh, on the mother. Um, he he looks like his like his mother, not his father. But um, but the influence really is more with uh, Jacques, you know, his, his father. Uh, the interesting thing and, and very sad thing is his father was a doctor and Kubrick hated going to the doctor. Hmm. Once he needed uh, dental work and they had to fly his dentist in from New York and you know, he was in England. And, you know, in a sense, he did not have to die when he when he did because he was so afraid of going to the doctors. He said, oh, I got the flu or something. Mm. And uh, and that's how he died. But but I you know I would love to um, you know maybe sometime I'll, I'll go back and look at, try to look at some research about about the mother. There's really not a lot about her. A very bright woman, and uh, that's about it. We get a glimpse of her in the in the making of the Shining documentary, right? Uh, when she visits the set, and that's that's all that's all we really have ever seen of of her. Um, but while we're on this subject, his his handling of female characters, because when you think about Kubrick films, I, I mean, I think Nicole Kidman is just 
hypnotic in Eyes Wide Shut, and, and Shelley Duvall gives one of the great performances of the genre in The Shining. But o- overall, what, what do you think of his portrayal of, of an investment in female characters? Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, it's interesting that, that I, uh, you know, because I did a, a book on Scorsese too. Mm-hmm. That, um, yeah, I'm not going to go as far as to say they, they hate women, but they, they do not understand them. They're no Ingmar Bergmans. And if you go through Kubrick's films, you know the, the, um, you know, you mentioned two of the, the greatest performances, and uh, Shelley Winters and Lolita. I, I guess I would add. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, it's interesting because he had, you know, he, he had every, he had a lot of women around him, and um, loved and respected his wife the day he died, and um, loved his daughters and was very uh, a very good father, that, that kind of thing. But but as you go through them, for some reason, the one image that always comes into mind is in the um, Clockwork Orange where the woman, very heavily busted woman, gets, young woman gets uh, raped. Do you remember mm-hmm. that scene? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the, there's there's such cruelty there, you know, that, yeah, you could say it's imagination, you could say it's, you know, um, part of the film, it's part of the scene, but, but I was always curious, you know, and... And went as far as I could, and really, which was not very far, of, of why he had these kind of uh, the kind of fantasies, and especially in, in, in Eyes Wide Shut, you know, uh, the whole um, sex scene, you know, the whole uh, scene in the castle. Right. Well, and, and plus, I think that people peg him. And this isn't new. I mean, this has been said of him forever, but uh, that he's a cold filmmaker. And I think it's something different than that. I think that he he doesn't judge his characters. He doesn't implant um, any sense of how you should feel as a viewer watching it. Uh, and people are used to being programmed to know how to feel, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And he's he's not afraid of ambiguity in no. his films. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It does. It does. And, and you know, when you go through all the films, um, there's no question that there's a, a coolness, a, a coldness in his attitude. And on, at the same time, you know, and, and I think you have to watch the films, you know, with a really open mind and, and you know, under the greatest conditions, that, that there is a... A heat to him. Also, I would say, you know, especially in The Shining, mm. you know, that the, some of the, the, I mean, you know, the, the famous scene on the steps with the bat, uh, you know, uh, with Nicholson uh, threatening to bash her, her head in, that scene is, is really red hot. Yeah. Um, the, his, his films are so different. I mean, he's worked in so many different genres, but do you see any kind of predominant themes that he explored time and time again? Well, one one theme is is the whole thing of, of machines taking over, you know, our society, and the other thing is the you know malevolence in, in man, you know the, the 
you know, and I think what you know, another one of my favorites is Barry Lyndon, which you can't even talk about with some people. That's boring, three hours long. Um, but in that film, he really shows the dark side of man, and I think you know he was uh, obsessed with that. And, and I think the other thing would be war. Yeah, why man gets involved in these horrible situations and Paths of Glory is a film that I saw I guess I was 21 I just started uh, film school 2021 and I tell people that all the time and I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you this right now is that I wouldn't be talking to you now if it wasn't for that film mm. the, the, the way that Kirk Douglas looks when they're going in the trenches I've never seen anything like that I just uh I remember being mesmerized, and it really led ultimately over a long, long time when I got the opportunity, and I never thought I was going to write a book on, on Kubrick, and you know, everybody said, you can't write a biography about Kubrick. He'll <laughs> get back into that, you know, that it's impossible, but that film really uh, stirred me on. Yeah, and, and, and I just watched Paths of Glory again last night. Uh, and it it is it is amazing it is an amazing emotional film I think it's one of his most emotional films actually um, and but he has dealt with <clears throat> he did deal with the theme of themes of war uh, time and again in his career Paths of Glory and you know to a lesser extent in terms of combat uh, Doctor Strangelove but and then Full, Full Metal, Metal Jacket. Jacket yeah uh, what set for instance, Full Metal Jacket. What set his view of war apart from all the other kind of Vietnam-themed films that we saw around that time? Well, that's a great question. You know, if you if you look at that film and, and look at uh, you know, Platoon, I think is you know is a masterwork. It's a great, great film. Um, Apocalypse Now. There's so many. But Kubrick's, you know, this is an easy answer for me. Uh, it's simple. It's it's just. He, it, it, this black, black kind of view, you know, of of, um, of people. I mean, the 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 whole thing with the uh, uh, D'Onofrio character, and um, you know, the fact that that he becomes this marksman, he kills himself, he kills the, the uh, sergeant first. It's um, he. He's a, you know, he was a great student of war. I mean, he, he knew everything about every war. Um, his greatest film, well, two greatest films never really got made, uh, Napoleon and um, the the Begley Project, which uh, War Time Lies. Yeah. Which would have been, uh, you know, he he the the, the I guess the the claim is that that he realized. That Spielberg did it in Schindler's List, and he couldn't do it. That it would, it wouldn't be worth it to do it. But I wish he. I don't know. If, have you ever read Wartime Lies? I haven't read it. No, sir. No. Oh, it's a it's a wonderful book. Mm. It's a wonderful book. And there's another example. Uh, Louis Begley was the writer. I when I interviewed him, he said, "You know, I'm really calling out of, uh, you know." to be respectful and, you know, you contacted me and stuff. He said, I don't know anything. <laughs> he said, I never even <laughs> talked to Kubrick. Forget about meeting him. He said his brother-in-law handled all the, uh, you know, the paperwork and the price and, and all that, and that was it. 
But they were really close to getting that made, weren't they? They were. They were very close, but um, again, I think Kubrick just, you know, he felt that Schindler's List would, was going to hurt it. Yeah. And he didn't do it. There it seems to be... Uh, yeah, it is a great it is a great loss. I would have loved to have seen his, his version of that, um, of that whole era. Uh, there seems to be, though, he, he, he did great work, obviously, prior to 2001. Sure. <clears throat> but, you know, every time we talk about the major canon in his career, it, sure. it usually starts with 2001. Did something change in him? Did he find his his most confident voice with that project? That's a great question. You know, I think it had been developing all along. And, you know, as a, as a kid, he had read a lot of science fiction. It's You know, it's one of the great leaps into... You know, my feeling is 2001 isn't just a great science fiction movie. It's one of the great movies of all time. And it's one that I've had more arguments with people and I've given opposite. You know, if you don't like it, don't like it, you know. Uh, but this is a movie that, that uh, you know, as you say, you know, it, it really is very, very special. You know, I, th I think what had a lot to do with it was was being in England and, uh, you know, how different it was to make movies there. I mean, if you think, you know, the the, um, the debacle that he had on uh, Spartacus, mm -hmm. I mean, he just swore that this would never happen to him again. And then he set up, uh, set up shop in England and a new way of, of working. And Arthur C. Clarke actually wrote the book concurrently uh, with the production? Losing you a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. Did, can you hear me okay? No, it's still a little low. Uh-oh. Uh, let me see if I can do something about it. Um, I don't know if it's my phone or my switchboard. Uh, okay. So, so Arthur C. Clarke wrote this book concurrently with the shooting of the film, correct? Yeah, what was so unique is is that they came up with this idea that he would, you know, Kubrick bought several several of his stories, the key one being the Sentinel that had, you know, the monolith and, and some other elements. And uh, then he bought four or five other stories because he wanted to cover himself. So he was always afraid someone else was going to do something that he did because it took him so long to do it that someone could just bang out something, you know, mm -hmm. if that's possible, but with something like 2001. Um, mm -hmm. But they they had a marvelous uh, collaboration. And um, the the book, I like the book very much. I think it's, you know, and people have said, I think um, Mr. Clark has said several times, uh, you know, during that experience that, that you should see the movie, read the book, go back and forth. Because they, the the book answers things that are not in the in the film, and the film, I mean, look at the look at the ending in the in the book, it's a um, it's a uh, small hotel room, and when he opens up the drawer, there's a Bible, but there's all like scribbles in it, and I guess this has been this is the thing that people. Uh, seem to, to like to make fun of, which is that 
incredible room. Uh, I think one of the great moments in film is when Keir DeLay, uh you know, breaks the glass. Yeah, yeah. Which which apparently was his was his idea on set. <clears throat> Keir's idea to break the glass. Um, can you hear me okay? It's good. it's pretty low now. <clears throat> well, okay. Let me see here. Uh, all right. I have no volume control on my switchboard, so I'll try to speak up. <laughs> okay. Um, so he never he never discussed the meaning of his films uh, with obviously the press, but he, he didn't discuss a lot with his actors, whether it be 2001 or any film in his career. What, what was his relationship like with, with his actors as a whole? But, yeah, it depends on, on, on the actor. Jersey Scott, he liked uh, very much. Um, the person that, <laughs> that really um, drove him up a wall was Shelley Duvall. Mm. And um, the the actor that that he loved the most was Jack Nicholson. And again, all you have to do is look at The Shining to to see that. So he also, um, I've been told, someone who worked on Full Metal Jacket in a sequence. There, there was there was originally going to be three parts to the film. And this this actor told me that Kubrick so much loved actors that he would jump into a scene and play a part you hmm. know for you know to for um rehearsal reasons but you know i think he's really not known that way he's known as somebody you know you know like a worse than hitchcock you know and i'm not so sure hitchcock hated actors as much as uh, you know the uh, the fable goes but but i think he he um he liked either either very intelligent actors or he liked complete wild men, you know, kind of actors that, you know, would, would give a really, you know, uh, over-the-top performance. Yeah, yeah. And, and wasn't it kind of, <clears throat> was his approach to actors tailored upon their particular needs or what he needed from them? Because I, I, I watched Shelley Duvall in that film and his interaction with her in the documentary and it, i'm i believe that he knew exactly what he was doing he was he was pressing the buttons he needed to press with her yeah that that's that's very true and i think he would do that you know um Arthur Penn um and um Kazan used to do that that kind of thing um you know it's it's a matter of no i mean you got to be a bit of a psychologist or a psychiatrist when you're uh, directing, and um, yeah, he would he would try to find either a strong spot or a weak spot, whatever was going to make the film work better. Yeah, and uh, and then he would go for it. And um, what you were mentioning about Nicole Kidman, what a performance! And I, I know one story that that someone told me that happened on the set is when. She did the the famous speech that's in that you know the scene where they get high and mm -hmm. uh, you know, she tells him about this fantasy that she's had that she gave it her all and when she was finished he said Nicole that is the greatest 
performance I've ever seen, dramatic performance. He said, and i got to tell you something, it's absolutely not what I want, and it'll never be in the movie. And the poor woman started to cry. And this is what I was told. And um, and then he started off again. You know, I, I mean, the thing about about Kubrick as an actor is that, that amazes me is the amount it takes. You know, the 143 or 147 takes in, in uh, The Shining when Scatman is is doing his uh, talking to the boy. Mm-hmm. You know what kind of stamina you have to have to to do that many takes. And and yet, you know, Kubrick would, you know, he was not the kind of guy, he was very active. He was always, you know, he didn't sit in the director's chair all day. Um, and and he would, you know, be very involved with the, the whole process. What do you think he was searching for in, in those multiple takes? He always said that he was looking for something, like if you came through a door, he said to Jack Nicholson, I want you to come through that door like no one's ever walked through a door. That's what he was looking for. He was looking for something, you know, people say, well, didn't he know what he wanted? He, I mean, if you look at his films, I mean, I can't think of too many more directors that were so, uh, you know, had a vision and, and brought it to life so amazingly. Um, so that, that that's, the, that's the approach, that he would say, do this in such a way that it's never been done before. And someone like Jack Nicholson loved it, and others, apparently, uh, he and Harvey Keitel didn't get along. He was going to be an eyes wide shut. But um, you know, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting approach. I, I, I spoke to Leon uh, over the weekend, Vitali. Yes. And uh, we were talking about eyes wide shut, and. Uh, Generally, I'm leaving out all the kind of trivia and, and rumors and that sort of thing from the series. I'm leaving that out. Right. But I, I, I'm curious. Do, do you know what happened with Eyes Wide Shut and the whole Kaitel Jennifer Jason Lee aspect of it? Well, I, you know, I tell you, you know, only what I've heard, and and uh, Leon Vitali was there, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, so so he may have you know a good insight. But what I had heard was that Keitel, this sounds ridiculous, that he was like unaware of how long Kubrick would need him. I mean, I think everybody knows that, that you're there. So the movie's finished. It could be a year, you know? And um, that they did not get along at all. And they were fighting. And um, the, 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 the reason that he gave, you know, to the press, I tell that is said that uh, he was working on another picture. He had a, a movie set up, and he had to leave. So there was no problem. He just left. I wonder how he, what he would have been like in that role, because Sidney Pollack, may he rest in peace, was amazing. And it, you know, I, I love Kaitel's work. He's a great, great actor. But I'm not sort of odd casting. Yeah. It would have been a completely different uh, character because oh, yeah. I mean Sidney Pol- Sidney Pollack is so warm and personable on screen. I I, I loved his acting work in general, Pollack, and is. and Keitel is a lot more confrontational. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he's a Scorsese man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. As far as Jennifer Jason uh, Lee is concerned, um, the, what I what I had heard is that he just didn't think she was good enough. You know, that, that he felt he made a mistake, you know, that obviously, you know, he screens everything that you, you have, have ever been in, including maybe home movies, <laughs> if you get them. And um, mm-hmm. that's really it's a joke. But he would he would really study the, the actors that that he wanted, and uh, he felt that she just wasn't right for it. And um, he almost caused her to have a breakdown. You know, he would go over and over and over and over. You know, I have a feeling that I, I'm not saying that he predicted that, that he was going to that he was towards the end of his life. But I think you know when you when you start reaching you know pushing seventy, you know you're saying, well, look, I, I, how many more movies am I going to be able to make? You know, another one, two, yeah. maybe. Um, and and I think that had a lot to do with it. That, that he he wanted the movie to be great, and um, and then you know the the casting of Cruz and, and Kidman is it's just it's astounding. They're, they're, I, I think they're amazing together, and um, you know they, they they got a fax asking if they would like to be in a in, in a movie by Stanley Kubrick, and supposedly uh, Cruz said yes. <laughs> he said, "Send me the script, but yes, we'll do it. Regardless, we're doing it. You want us? We'll be there." Absolutely, and and actually, <clears throat> Tom Cruise. Um, in terms of his track record and, and the people that he's chosen to work with, yeah. uh, he has one of the most amazing careers of, of anyone in film. The, the, the amount of talent that he's, that he's collaborated with and learned from is just staggering. And, oh, it is amazing. Um, which brings an, up another point, because he's got one of the biggest stars, if not the biggest star on the planet, it, with him on Eyes Wide Shut, um, and he consumes a year of his time. Uh, in, in the studio, he had such great freedom and control uh, from the studio. Um, what? How did that arrangement come about, where where he was given all that freedom, like no other director? No. Well, I could, you, know, you could say Spielberg has has gotten some some of that loo, and Woody, and Woody Allen also, but it's still not this and. You know, Orson Welles on Citizen Kane, and then that was it. They, Warner Brothers, you know, were, you know what it is? It's to be able to, it's like bragging rights. It's like to be able to say, you know, I have uh, Picasso <laughs> painting for me. Yeah. That kind of a thing. Yeah. And, and I think uh, they were very loyal to him. And, you know, if you look at the box office returns, some of the movies, like Barry Lyndon, I guess, eventually made money and did well in Europe, but it didn't do well here. Full Metal Jacket did well. The Shining was a major hit. Mm-hmm. Even though a lot of uh, specialists in, in our films uh, didn't necessarily like the film, but the public liked it. So I think, yeah. I, I think that's it. I think that's why they, they signed on with him. And what they would do, and he would say, he would, he would call up and say, uh, you know, I have my script, I'm ready. And they, would, <clears throat> you know, the, uh, the studio heads, would, one or the other, 
two two gentlemen. Uh, one would come over, and he would stay at a hotel. But Kubrick had somebody with him at all times to make sure that the script didn't get, you know, copied or uh, have anybody else look at it. And then they would say, "Great, Stanley. Uh, you know, what do you think? How much money do you think you're going to need? Well, this, that, this, that." And you know, his films were really not. I mean, even um, 2001, I think, was like 10 million. That seems like a lot of money, but for what he did in that film is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, look what James Cameron spent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and he he was very economical. And I understand also on the Eyes Wide Shut set. Uh, one reason why he could be so economical and take so much time was that he used a minimum amount of crew. I mean, there, it, it wasn't a social atmosphere on his set no. at all. No, no, he, and he was famous for that, for really using you know, the smallest amount of crew. They were very loyal. Um, someone told me that, that uh, you know, they would they would go out to McDonald's to eat because, you know, it was time for a food break. Kubrick was he, he was mainly interested in in making movies, you know, and in feeding his cats when there was a break. And um so they you know, they would go off to a McDonalds and then come back. Mm. Uh he seemed to with uh, movies like uh Clockwork Orange, um in, in some other Lolita he he seemed to enjoy uh, adapting what others might think are unadaptable yeah. films. I mean, t- tackling kind of impossible subjects. I mean, the, the most famous would probably be Napoleon, the, the biggest subject of all that he, he wasn't able to get off the ground. Uh, was he was he attracted to to that? Do you think? Yeah, he, he he definitely that was one of the things that I think uh you know, I mean he said that with the, the Shining he wanted to make the scariest horror film ever made. But no, I think you're right. I think he he always tried to find you know, where someone said, "Oh, you can't do that." Lolita is is a great example, you know. You can't uh, you can't do that. How are you going to be able to do it? What are you going to show? You can't show anything. And um it's it's funny that there there are a lot of um I, you know, I teach at the School of Visual Arts, and uh, the the students, a lot of them like the, uh, they really like the Kubrick version, as opposed to the mm-hmm. Adrian Lyne version, which was much more graphic. One, one thing I wanted to know was his relationship to other filmmakers. I, I'm curious to know if there was a competition in him or if he was very supportive of other filmmakers. You know, he, he he was most supportive is uh, you know his his partner, uh, you know uh, Jimmy um, James, James Harris. Harris. Yeah. yeah, they were very um, you know they they were close friends, and and he would see every one of his films, and uh, you know and, and come back to him and tell him how much how much he liked them. He, you know, his his favorite film filmmaker of all time was. Um, uh, Max Ophels, mm-hmm. and you know mainly because of the the camera movement. But he, I'm told that he watched 
just about everything that he could, you know. And if he liked something, he would, you know, he talked to Spielberg, of course, and he talked to uh, Francis Coppola. Mm. He was a pretty generous guy. Yeah. Did so he was aware because a lot has been made of, uh, you know, the, the, there had been horror films. Uh, made up to the time that he did The Shining that were kind of game changers like The Exorcist and that sort of thing and and people read his his approach to The Shining as saying well I, I'm going to make the definitive horror film uh, and maybe the same with the with the war genre with Full Metal Jacket was was there an aspect of of that to him and his choices? Yeah, well actually the best one those are very good choices but the best one is science fiction with 2001. Mm hmm. And in fact, um, you know, in the book, it's really hysterical that that he told um, Arthur C. Clarke, you know, I want you to, what's the what's the five best, ten best horror, uh, excuse me, science fiction films of all time? So he would bring him, and no matter what he brought him, I mean, they went through everything, and he said, "What are you trying to kill me? This is junk. This is." Terrible, <laughs> awful. <laughs> so he was, yeah, yeah I guess he, you know, he was very critical. Um, you know, I think this probably it was probably the same with war films, and mm -hmm. um, you know, with the horror films too. The, yeah. Um, I don't know if we talked about it last time, but one of the things, you know, the way he chose um, The Shining is that you know he. The first thing he would do is say, okay, I want to do a horror film. Then he'd say, you know, I have to read every horror film ever written. And he, his uh, secretary was in the other room, and she would hear, you know, he would start a book, she could sort of hear him, and then after a period of time, boom, it would go against the wall. She would hear him throw it. Mm. So she gathered when he was reading The Shining because nothing hit the wall. <laughs> eventually you know uh, he, lo he loved The Shining it is interesting though because he picked he picked uh, most of the subjects of his films were adaptations from novels yeah. and, and it, it is interesting how he changed some of these novels to uh, be more adaptable to his own personal obsessions in terms of themes and uh, and, and so I, I think a, a big criticism, particularly of The Shining, was how far removed it was from yeah. King's novel. Yeah, yeah, uh, which which I think is sort of a shame in a way because I, I, I you know, I don't know how people in general feel about it. I think it's one of uh, King's best books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, you know, and the, the the changing, you know, I think the change, you know, this thing one like the greatest horror film ever made, I, I think that had something to do with it, that he felt that he could change it, you know, uh, in, in that direction, uh, that it would make it, uh, you know, that everybody would, like, bow down and say, you're the greatest horror maker, and um, which unfortunately wasn't true, that uh, from what I understand, um, I haven't read it, but Fangoria gave a terrible review of the book, of the movie, rather. Of the movie, huh. Yeah, of the movie. I like they liked the book, but they they hated Kubrick's uh, movie. Well, that was that was part for the course. I mean, especially anyone that was loyal to that book, uh, and it's a curiosity. But 
because the strength of the book was that for me was that J- Jack was capable of of this kind of behavior, right. this kind of destructive behavior, but he was trying his best to to be on the straight and narrow and be a devoted husband and father and and so it was the dissent that played so terrifying in the book and, and just the very nature of casting Jack Nicholson in the lead of The Shining made a statement oh, <laughs> that, yeah. that the dissent wasn't wasn't necessarily going to go from 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 sane to insane, but uh, just from insane to greater insanity. <laughs> It's you know it's one of the great performances. I think so too. I do, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and um, you know, a lot of people have, have criticized the Shelley Duvall. I think she's wonderful in it also. I th- I think she gives one of the best performances of, of that genre. It's staggering what she does in that film. Yeah, you know she she, you know the the, the look is very different. See again, here we we get into trouble. It's very difficult to to, uh, to adapt uh, a novel because people reading it in their minds, you know, they they probably pictured her as you know um, a little more attractive, uh, you know, very strong and that kind of thing. And um, I thought that I thought she was perfect. Mm-hmm. He, he did a great job. Um, of course, like to to a lot of people, she's uh, you know she was in Popeye. And she was the greatest olive oil of all time. Yeah, very much, yeah. Um, in talking to, to some of the people I've spoken to since our last conversation, there seems to be a couple of themes going on in his work, and I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on this. Uh, he he seems to be um, obsessed with um, duality, uh, like the dual nature the of duality man. duality of man, yeah. Especially in, in uh, Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. You know, with the peace sign and you know, right. going into right. war, and even there, I would even say that you know the Mickey Mouse uh, theme. Yeah. You know, at the end. Yeah, and and did he have a did he have a distrust of institutions because? It... Oh, he hated them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Cooper did not trust many. <laughs> Many people or, or corporations, uh, just like he also didn't, um, you know, as much as people think he was into machines, he was terrified of them. Mm-hmm. Even computers. Well, yeah, and and I mean that, that that's there in two thousand one, mm-hmm. um, and you know, obviously the government and is is one of his targets in Clockwork Orange and. Maybe the class system in Barry Lyndon. Yes. Um, he he was really devastated by the. Speaking of Barry Lyndon, devastated by the failure of that film, wasn't he? He, he was. He was, and you know, um, I I just love that film. I do you too. Know, you, know, you know what I what, usually you know when I get students, especially students that say you know they love Kubrick, I say, have you seen uh, Barry Lyndon? No. Meaning, it's well, it's long and it's a period film and there's narration. And I said, let, let me tell you, when I saw it in the theaters, you know, when it first came out in the theater, in the first run theater, there was, I mean, you could really, you could smell it that people hated it. Hmm. And you know, I tried to do what I usually do is is just to drop all. You know, make believe uh, it's just me and the screen, 
And I I loved it. I thought it was remarkable. And um, I mean, it's without a doubt the greatest period film ever made. I mean, I, you know, Amadeus is good, great, maybe, but I don't know if it, if it holds a candle. In fact, that's a good <laughs> candle is a good <laughs> word, right, for Barry Lyndon, because they lit the, the movie using candles. Yes. Yeah. And do you I, know? Do you know what he, what he did? Is he had candles that were on, you know, that, that you saw. That, that the um, people of that time were using. He also, instead of using lights, he had instruments built and had candles on them and lit the scene using those instruments. And this is this is one of my favorite Kubrick stories. He had a guy or a gal sit there with, with a journal book and make a chart of how the candles were burning down. Because the ones that were on camera, he wanted to make sure that there was no continuity mistakes. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> that's my family. <laughs> yeah, that's that's our reticulous Stanley, that's right. Yeah. You know, but the movie was Barry Lyndon, I mean, it wasn't a movie that was much in favor at that time, I mean, just that genre film because it was, it was kind of the new Hollywood right, uh, right. period of time. But like all of his movies, I find that they're always open for reassessment. In that's right. And Barry Lyndon and Ice White Shutter both now very well thought of as years that, have gone by. Right. And especially Barry Lyndon, you know, a couple of critics, you know, had the had the courage to. Uh, to say, you know, this is a darn good film. They, they, uh, you know, it's always been admired in Europe. That should tell you something, you know. Mm-hmm. That the, mm-hmm. the Europeans knew something that 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 we didn't. But um, the thing, I, I, you know, I guess, you know, again, getting back to how do you watch a film that long and the time and all that. And I tell people either, you know, reserve a three-hour block and do it. And I don't really recommend this as heartily, but if you can't do that, you know, watch an hour a day, half hour, you know, nothing less than that, um, because it's a busy world out there now, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think when people do that, they come to me, they say, you know, I just started it, and I, I watched like an hour. What do you think? It's, a, it's incredible. I I can't believe that I never liked it or didn't know anything about it. You know, they're all confused about it, but once they see it, and, um, you know, the, the the acting in that is as good as the acting in anything else he's done. Yeah. Especially yeah. Ryan O'Neill. Yeah, I know I told you the, uh, <laughs> the sign that he went in, sorry. But um, that's the, that, people can't believe it. They're like, you're kidding, right? I said, do I kid? <laughs> do I kid about Stanley Kubrick? <laughs> that is a great story. Uh, do you think that um, it, with a Kubrick film, though, I mean, you really have to pay attention to it. Uh, I, I mean, you, you really have to because there's so much there. And that's why, uh, like I've said, I, I can watch a Kubrick film now 10 years after I first saw it, and it's a different right. kind of experience for me because I'm I'm different in a way. I'm more receptive to reading deeper things in the, in the film. Right. And the world um, is different, too. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, how do you... Uh, go, go ahead. No, no, please, please. Oh, you, you know, how, how do we perceive war now, you know? Uh, we're living in a very bad time for war, you know, and, you know, I guess I still think we're involved in two wars, although people seem to think we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, so how do you perceive, or, you know, you look at a, at a Kubrick film, and, you know, you could just imagine if he was still around and he made another war film. And, um, I mean, there's some good ones made about the, uh, you know, the current wars, but I, you know, I can't imagine what he would do, you know, because um, you can imagine what he would do about 9-11 and, the, you know, the repercussions of that. Yeah, yeah. Especially since, you know, in spirit, he never, he never left the Bronx in a way. I mean, he never no. left that area. Yeah. No, no. I, I, I like to hear that because, you know, I, I've always, you know, in interviews, have said he's a, you know, he's like a Bronx kind of guy. But look, isn't he crazy? Isn't he? This? I said, you know, in, a, in some ways, he never really left the Bronx. You know, mm-hmm. um, people tell me that that, uh, you know, he was always around, but he didn't necessarily want, I remember one person told me he wasn't the kind of guy with five other guys that would sit on a car, you know. Mm-hmm. They would see him and they'd say, hey, Stanley, how you doing? You know, he'd say, you know, he'd like nod his head and uh, go on to uh, whatever he was doing. But um, the Bronx is, a, you, you know, I don't know how many people hearing, uh, hearing my voice know the Bronx, but it is... Uh, you know, one of the boroughs that really is is amazing. I mean, any borough that attempted to to do something called Freedom Land, which was in the shape of the United, which is a theme park in the shape of the United States. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Kubrick <laughs> <laughs> would have liked that. I think he would have liked that they had every hour on the hour they had Chicago Fire. <laughs> Uh, was he aware of his? I'm sure he 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 could not be. He, he had to have been aware of his status and 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 how people revered him among filmmakers. Did did he feel uh, pressure to live up to that reputation, or did he just not consider that? I don't think he considered it. I, I think you know, to him, it was a matter of you know he had an incredible life and he would wake up. Uh, some some days if he, was, if he was working on something, of course, you know he'd be reading or researching. He um, he was really remarkable in 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 the dedication, you know, that that he gave to to his his craft. And um, in terms of of how others, you know, he well, I mean, I do know, and this is pretty well documented. That Pauline Kael's review of 2001, in mm. which she called it an amateur movie, mm. it's even hard for me to say it. I mean, it's, I mean, it's really, uh, and I, I, I adored her. I thought she was a great critic. But who, why say that? She said it was it was amateur because he had his daughter in it. Mm. That's bad. Yeah, that hurt him. That hurt him a lot. Um, and once in a while he would write, you know, he would write a letter to a newspaper and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I mean, he was human, obviously. 
but um but I think by and large he he uh he tried to just do you know his thing one of the things that I love finding in in the research is that if he wasn't let's say he just finished a movie and he hasn't hadn't figured out what he wanted to do next, he would take a novel any novel off his you know uh, out of his library. You really have to call it. He has so much, so many books, and he would spend the day. He would invite somebody over, and they would read it out loud. They would analyze it. They would discuss it. So he was, uh, and also he's famous for. Uh, he and his wife were famous for parties. They would have mm-hmm. these great parties where they would, um, you know, they would they would invite all kinds of great people. You know, great minds. And uh, and discuss it. He was, you know, I mean, all you could keep saying is we're not going to see his likes again. And 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 on in the, on that line, do you see the influence of Kubrick and, and other filmmakers that are working today? Everywhere, everywhere. Mm. I think the thing you know that that I see the most is is the um, moving the camera, but most. What I see the most really in other filmmakers is the framing. They all love that Kubrick framing where there's a you know a center, a person standing in the center, and then on either side counterbalanced by either other people or objects and architecture and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just you know it's they love it. People love it, and it's. And it's you know all ages and all different kinds of, of filmmakers. One thing I you know this sort of come, comes to mind. One thing I think is sort of sad is that that Kubrick really I mean he gave to so many people by making his films, but he never you know I mean a lot of filmmakers have taken on people as uh, you know mentors and stuff. Right. And he once made a statement. He said, "I would love to do that." get a young guy or young gal and teach them the business and all that, you know what? He never was going to do that. It's not in his personality. Mm. You know, he was too busy uh, making films. And I don't know. I don't know if it would be, you know, if he was a jealous sort. But, um, you know, the, the, the thing is, I would love, I mean, he did almost do a Western, you could say, you know, with Brando. The one it was was that one eye jacks one eye jacks, yeah mm-hmm. they, they they had they got into big fights and Brando was there like half naked uh, banging on gongs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean Kubrick is one thing but Kubrick and Brando forget it. You know? <laughs> but I yeah. often wondered what a Kubrick western would look like. Yeah, I mean we know what you know with. Uh, Spartacus was not something he would normally do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was not happy with uh, the, the treatment of you know on that film, and he sort of never forgave uh, anybody you know, that, that that he got involved in it. And yet, that film is beloved by a lot of people. Spartacus. Yeah, yeah. And and it and it includes some some hallmarks of Kubrick's work. I mean the. 
the the large the large crowd scenes that you see echoed in Barry Lyndon and then the in the battles and that sort of thing. But he, did he really feel like a director for hire on, on that project? Yeah, he was not happy. You know, he was not happy with, with uh, you know everyone from the cameraman and uh, who um, won an Oscar for for uh, the film. And at one point. Um, Kubrick was complaining there wasn't enough light, so the, the uh, DP kicked everything. So there was, he said, now there's too much light. And then there's um, there's a very famous line that the DP said to the um, uh, to one of the crew because he was tired of uh, of seeing Kubrick go up and down on the crane. And mm-hmm. this is, you know, I don't know if he if he's going to be able to use this, but he said. We got to get the Jew boy off the crane. Hmm. Pretty bad. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's an ugly business out there, you know. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, what, what I haven't asked anyone about is is AI because I know that he ha- had it in mind for his next project after Eyes Wide Shut, and he had yeah, it in yeah. mind that he'd he'd possibly produce for. Spielberg. I mean, uh, and that came out after his his death. Um, your observations of AI. What do you think of the project? Do you think it's keeping in line with Kubrick's vision? I think I think Spielberg did an excellent job, you know, in in keeping up, especially the the um, the influence of of um, Clockwork Orange. Mm. You know that scene where they go to that uh, like amusement park place. Right. Um, I have to tell you, I really don't believe that Kubrick was ever considering producing it. That's not his thing. Why? Because mm-hmm. he's getting older? Why? Because Spielberg knows children and all that kind of stuff. I mean, all those things have been said, but I really don't believe it. But, well, it was um, so per- it was so pers- personal to him. I mean, he shepherded yeah. the whole... Yeah. Yeah, and, and and you know he spent yeah he spent so much time on it. It um, the only thing is you know I, I, when I saw it I saw it at, a, at an, an invite uh, screening, and the only problem that I had with it is that um, the creatures. Mm. I the you know Kubrick would not have had creatures like that in a film, uh, as proof. Ken Adams says that that um, they were going to do. He wanted a creature for uh, 2001, and they couldn't do it. They gave up. They said mm. you can't do a creature believable. You know, it's a, you know, a creature from outer space. Mm. But um, yeah, see, I mean, I guess that's a that's a film that has it doesn't have as many admirers. I don't think is it. Uh, you know, certainly not as, as the others, but um, you know, I mean, he was approaching his his themes in it, and uh, you know, what a great uh, a great idea to have those two guys work together. I think so too, and and they they seem at first glance like polar opposites. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, yes, really. Uh, they were supposed the- to be good friends, though. Yes, and and the amazing thing about the film, though, is that I, I feel equal parts Spielberg and Kubrick in it. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, the the 
And and that in itself, if you could do one scene where people would look at it and say, "Oh, this is Kubrick," and, and you mm-hmm. know, and, and again, I point to that scene in the uh, you know the Clockwork Orange type, uh, um, you know, place where they had all kinds of crazy rides and stuff. Yeah, I, I think they call it the Flesh job. Farm. Yeah. The, the thing, you see, the thing I think where Spielberg, you know, it's not fair to say that he went wrong. He's such a great, great director. But the stuff with the kid, you know, I would have rather seen, you know, a combination of of their views. That was too much Spielberg, I thought. Mm-hmm. But you know, again, who am I to say? You know, because there there are people that, that that's that's the film too that that people uh, people do like. Yeah. They wish that Kubrick uh, was alive when they made it. What do you think is his? Uh, it's a loaded question, but what do you think yeah. his legacy is? Obviously, we have the films, but what do you think he's left cinema? I think the the concept of being totally immersed in what you do. That if you're going to make a film, you better know. The history of film, the history of editing, how editing works, how cinematography works. Just that that complete, total uh, immersion into uh, into your work, and I think that's that's really what he what he left us. He left us with a lot of great films and and many other things. But you know that that's a gift. I wish. Um, I wish could be given to to more students and, and filmmakers. Just that yeah. you know, you're gonna make a movie, put your soul in it. Mm-hmm. I think so too. And and so many movies are disposable nowadays. And and he absolutely did not make <laughs> did not make disposable movies. I mean, no. his movies will last as long as there are movies. They will, you know, and it's. You know the thing, and I think we talked about this last time with with the, you know, him doing thirteen movies. You know, uh, I don't know why people get you know people like to like sort of jab you. Oh, you only made thirteen movies. Yeah, yeah but look at the movies he made, <laughs> <laughs> and look at the amount of time that he spent. Yeah. You know, and you could you know you could argue well you could spend a lot of time on something and it could be terrible, but. He did not make terrible films. He made great films, by and large. I mean, some are some are better than others. I think, you know, for me, 2001 will always be one of the great films of all time.